This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, self-driving cars. How much confidence can you have in their safety? The technology works, but it's not the complete version of you sitting there reading a book and working on your laptop or whatever while your car drives you everywhere you need to go. Safe driving with no driver. Radio Health Journal returns. Chronic pain affects almost 20% of adults. However, for some patients with what's called complex regional pain syndrome of the lower limbs, traditional treatment may not provide relief. But now a new therapy from St. Jude Medical may help. This new therapy stimulates a dorsal root ganglion, or DRG, a cluster of nerve cells in the spinal column that transmit pain signals to the brain. Dr. Rick Pacious of Newport Beach Headache and Pain says it can be highly effective. DRG therapy can be precisely targeted to specific anatomic locations in the body where pain occurs. The accurate clinical studies show that 74% of DRG patients achieve that treatment success at 12 months. To learn more and to find a specialist in your area, visit sjm.com pain. That's sjm.com pain. Implementation of a neurostimulation system can involve risk, such as painful stimulation, loss of pain relief, and surgical risk during the implementation procedure, such as paralysis. Patients should talk to their physician to determine if DRG therapy is right for them. Americans drive about 3 trillion miles per year, and like anything we spend a lot of time doing, the relationship we have with our car can be complicated. Some people love to hit the road, but for many of us, driving is a daily chore, a source of stress and frustration that we'd rather do without. We may love the convenience of being able to go where we want, when we want, but cars that drive themselves sure sound good. I think people should anticipate that they're coming. You know, a few years ago, this was the stuff of science fiction, and I think very, very soon it's going to become reality. That's Dr. Needy Kalra, a senior information scientist for the RAND Corporation. She says self-driving cars are coming faster than many experts anticipated. Their cameras and radar are rapidly getting better at sensing and recognizing everything around them, Obviously a good thing if someone's putting their life in the car's hands, so to speak. Public perception is a major hurdle. Most people think they're pretty good drivers themselves and doubt that a computer can do it more safely than they can. The question of confidence is a complex one. What you're really asking is how safe are autonomous vehicles and is that safe enough? And the trouble is that We have almost no way right now of really knowing how safe they are in a plausible time frame, meaning that the number of miles that you would have to drive to establish with some statistical confidence how safe they are is just astronomical. We would have to drive them the equivalent of driving to Neptune and back. So it's billions upon billions of miles. So what that means is that it involves some trust and evidence that developers of this technology have done due diligence, but we may not know for sure. And so I think the technology needs to be viewed with some healthy skepticism. The technology works, but it's not the complete version of you sitting there reading a book and working on your laptop or whatever while your car drives you everywhere you need to go. Not yet, anyway. Tesla's autopilot system comes close out on the open road, but Brandon Shutley says the company doesn't really want drivers to take their hands off the wheel and quit paying attention. Shutley is project manager for Sustainable Worldwide Transportation at the University of Michigan Transportation Research Institute. 
He says inattention is what led to the one known crash death in an autonomous Tesla, and eventually people will see that computers can be better drivers than us. I think for most people, seeing these become commonplace, getting experience with them, and hopefully uh, positive experiences where people see that they're saving lives and reducing crashes. And this is what's discussed within the industry, too, is if you can take 30,000, 40,000 deaths a year that occur on U.S. roads and reduce them down to three or 400, are people still going to be as happy about that massive reduction, or are they going to be overly concerned about the three or 400 deaths that occurred because computers killed people driving these cars around? Hopefully people understand the value in getting down to something like three or 400 fatalities a year and aren't focused on the fact that a computer was necessarily responsible for it, because after all, the computer's that are responsible for it are doing what they're told to do by their human programmers. But sometimes computers get confused. Right now, there are still some things that human drivers do better. Pattern recognition involves making sense of sometimes visually complicated scenes. An example most people can relate to are the things known as CAPTCHAs that you see on the Internet where they want to avoid having computers or other things automatically sign up for email lists or register. So they ask you to type a word and there's a squiggly line through it or it's a kind of fuzzy picture of an address plate on a house. And you as a human still generally, of course, they sometimes give you bad ones, but have a relatively easy time of figuring out what that says. Whereas a computer vision system, which would be the type of thing analyzing that image, still has a lot of difficulty with it. When you encounter those types of things on the road, we show a few in our report, which are illustrated well with photographs, is one's a downed power line. Humans can discern the difference between a downed power line and an expansion joint in the road. Sometimes computers can't. Self-driving cars also have problems with rain and reflections from water on the road. They may be unable to tell the difference between a puddle and a flood. In fact, bad weather in general is one of the biggest problems for autonomous cars. Yeah, and this has to do with some just basic technical issues. Cameras and other sensing hardware has a hard time, of course, as do people seeing through snow. Though this somewhat comes back to the visual pattern recognition issue, people are, are very good at guessing. Often you have a pretty good idea of where the road should be, and so you drive there. And sure enough, it's still there like it was this morning, even though it snowed. But this might, again, not be quite as simple for a vehicle to do. It doesn't just figure things out. It's following some rules and instructions, and if those rules and instructions don't have enough information because it's not able to see or sense the road, you may sort of get stuck, whereas a human, you were just able to figure it out. Despite those shortcomings, Google likes to tout that its self-driving cars have a nearly spotless track record. They simply don't cause crashes. But Shutley's analysis has found that autonomous cars are about five times as likely as a normal car to be involved in a crash, even if it's not the car's fault. It was very much the case that this was not often or at all the fault of the self-driving vehicle. These were almost all the time a situation where a human driver of a conventional vehicle was rear-ending these cars running into the back of them. And under relatively normal circumstances at traffic lights and things like that. So there's a bit of a mystery as to why that was happening. But crash involvement is kind of this number that doesn't really pay any attention to whose fault it was. One suggestion why self-driving cars get rear-ended? Maybe because they're going so slowly. Shutley says Google's cars don't go any faster than 25 miles per hour. That may keep them legally faultless, but a top speed of 25 isn't going to convince people that self-driving cars will be worth it. That's part of the 
situation that we face these days is that they've been used in very limited circumstances and they're treated as a low-speed vehicle, so they're limited to roads where the speed limit is no greater than 35. And this lack of experience and more open testing is part of what we think still needs to occur before these are really going to be deemed ready for mass consumption by the public. You know, high-speed driving, including limited access highways where you're driving 60, 70 miles an hour. Also things like nighttime, unusual environments like mountainous areas where lots of people in this country live. These are all areas where these vehicles have really not been fully tested yet. So this is part of what we think needs to be done to kind of demonstrate that they're really capable of driving in all the different places they'll need to go. Another criticism of many self-driving cars is that right now they can be extremely timid. This is certainly something to be concerned about if the vehicles have a combination of potentially following the rules of the road too closely and being too cautious. I guess you might call them sort of tolerance levels of what the vehicle is looking for that they're still trying to work out. For example, I know early generations of these types of vehicles, and I don't know if this is still the case, at four-way stops, were looking for the vehicles that were at the other parts of the intersection to come to a complete stop as they're legally required. Now, most people don't do that. They might go extremely slow, but they don't actually stop. And these vehicles wouldn't proceed ahead until they sensed that the vehicle had stopped because their calculation showed it was still on its current path, going to continue into the intersection and cause a crash. And we all sort of know from these scenarios that that person's slowing down very slow to allow the person with the right-of-way to continue through, but they don't want to actually bring their vehicle to a stop. Shutley says such an overly strict adherence to the rules brings up the possibility that human drivers may be able to bully autonomous cars by driving aggressively. So he says automakers are trying to instill some confidence and even assertiveness in self-driving cars, so they'll proceed even if everything's not perfect. And Calra says sometimes they may even have to break the speed limit. Sometimes the safest way of driving is not what is required by law. Driving, you know, 55 miles an hour when everyone is doing 85 is extremely dangerous. So the balance has to be struck. Developers will have to strike a balance between following the letter of the law and following the spirit of the law, which is drive safely, which means being safe in the flow of traffic. All of this will be a big issue that needs to be addressed in this large period of time where these types of vehicles will be sharing the roads and interacting with conventional human drivers and normal vehicles. Things can work perfectly and sort of as everyone envisions when everybody has one of these vehicles, but trying to merge onto the highway at or below the speed limit is often a very dangerous thing to try to do. And certainly you're going to cause some traffic backups if you enter the highway going 50 miles an hour and the speed limit 70 and the average traffic's going 75. But then the question becomes, what rules do you allow the vehicles to break? If you allow them to break any, how much? These are some simple questions that are really difficult to answer. There are ethical, legal, and insurance issues to settle as well. If a self-driving car has the choice of hitting a pedestrian or crashing head-on into another car, what should it do? If a self-driving car causes a crash, who's responsible? There's already been some people who say, well, the driver should be responsible even if they're not driving, it's their car. I believe Volvo has come out with some of their vehicles and said, we as a company will take responsibility because we're in fact the driver, the computer's doing the driving, so we should be the ones responsible. So we are ready, before anything's happened, have these kind of conflicting approaches to liability and responsibility for what happens. So there's a lot of those questions that need to get answered before 
this becomes something that you see in most people's driveways. Liability could be why some manufacturers are shying away from cars that call for the driver to help out under some conditions. Those car makers would prefer to keep control themselves and let the car do everything. But right now we're all trusting manufacturers that these cars work the way they say they do. There are no governmental safety standards yet, but Shutley says there should be. Self-driving cars should have to pass a road test before they get their license. Maybe like a teenager, they'd have to get a graduated license first. To have a fully self-driving vehicle that can do all of the driving for you, it may not even have any controls for you to take, can even drive around empty, these need to be able to do everything all the time. So there would be a test that's devised and they would need to pass this test completely to get an unrestricted license. Versions of self-driving vehicles short of that, which do most of the driving or all of the driving some of the time and occasionally pass control back to you or even just give you the option to take control when you want. They may be able to operate under a restricted license where they pass certain tests, but then there's other scenarios. Either they voluntarily restrict or it happens as a result of failing the test where, for example, they say this vehicle cannot drive in snow and it cannot drive at night, just to pick two sort of scenarios. And the vehicle will know when these scenarios are and will force the human to do the driving under those conditions. However, when self-driving cars start passing all those tests with flying colors is when you'll start to see huge changes and the concept will begin to pay off in vastly increased efficiency. It's not just that cars will be different, the infrastructure will be too. Roads and intersections and other things can be designed quite differently than they are now because most of them were set up to control and communicate to human drivers who are driving around and that just can work so much differently and more efficiently when it's done by computers talking to each other and vehicles talking to each other and to the infrastructure, to the traffic signals, to other things to know exactly what's going on around them. Those things, though, I think are still definitely decades down the road. However, Shutley admits it could all come sooner than he imagines because the technology is already progressing at a breakneck pace. And while the big payoff will come when just about all the cars on the road drive themselves, he says we should still see an increase in efficiency and lives saved with every car added in the meantime. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. You can find archives of our programs there, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Reed Pence. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. The fall and holiday season offers many opportunities to enjoy the company of family and friends, as well as indulgent special occasion food. Yet too many big meals and sweet snacks can start to take their toll, from zapping our energy to causing weight gain. Registered dietitian, award-winning author, and television cooking show host Ellie Krieger has some advice. Before heading out to a party, enjoy a healthy snack with fresh California grapes so that you don't arrive hungry. Consider bringing a bowl of grapes to the buffet table to provide a fresh option to more indulgent party food. Be selective when you do indulge and make sure it is truly fabulous. Grapes from California are also a natural source of antioxidants and other polyphenols and may contribute to heart health. With just 90 calories for a three-quarter cup serving, no fat or cholesterol, and virtually no sodium, fresh grapes are a smart choice. For more information, visit grapesfromcalifornia.com. Medical Notes this week. Some people suffering from depression respond well to medication, but if they don't, it can mean a two- to three-year trial and error search for a drug that works. 
Now a study in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science shows that it's possible to predict with 80% accuracy which patients will respond well to antidepressants. The test is easy. Patients are given a five-minute brain scan while viewing images of happy and fearful faces and answer a 19-item questionnaire about early life stress. Women who are trying to get pregnant are advised not to drink because of the risk of fetal alcohol effects, but a new study shows it can also harm fertility. The study in the journal BMJ shows that heavy drinking is associated with nearly a 20% decline in fertility. Scientists define heavy drinking as more than two bottles of wine per week. They say that moderate drinking did not affect fertility. And finally, is it possible to make a liver-friendly vodka? An Indian company says it's done just that, and they want to say so on the label. Officials from the company told the website statnews.com that additives combined with vodka make it easier for the liver to break down alcohol. However, regulators may be skeptical. The company's study on whether the formula works included only 12 people. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. November is American Diabetes Month, as well as the start of the holiday season, a time when healthy eating can be difficult, especially for someone living with diabetes. Diabetes is the number one cause of kidney failure. Fresenius Kidney Care, the nation's leading network of dialysis facilities, encourages people with diabetes to eat right this holiday season to protect their kidneys. Joy Lutz-Mazar, registered dietitian and senior director of nutrition services for Fresenius Kidney Care, explains. People living with diabetes need to control carbohydrates. Those living with both diabetes and kidney disease also need to control sodium, potassium, and phosphorus. Go easy on seasonal treats like dried fruit, pumpkin, and potatoes but you can still enjoy the different colors, textures, and flavors of the holiday with a well-balanced meal. Joy Lutz-Mazar says if you have diabetes, speak with your health care provider and get tested for chronic kidney disease, which doesn't have many symptoms in the early stages. An early diagnosis and effective treatment plan can help preserve kidney function longer. Find more dialysis-friendly recipes at FreseniusKidneyCare.com. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.